Hello, and welcome to this podcast, which is brought to you by CSO in partnership with Cisco. Today, we're looking at how CISOs have adapted to the COVID-19 pandemic and what's next as we all adjust to the new normal. I'm Dan Swinhoe, UK editor at CSO Online, and joining me today is Wendy Nather, head of advisory CISOs for Duo Security at Cisco. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Dan. Great. Uh, today, we'll be chatting about how CISOs have had to adapt from working from home at scale securely, what Wendy's seen out in market, how security challenges still remain, and how organizations can ensure that their organizations are secure, not just now, but for the long term. And maybe some of the effects that the pandemic has had on CISOs in terms of leadership and sort of around the human factor. So, Wendy, um, just to start us off, um, you know, maybe talk about your role and what have you seen out in market? How are organizations and CISOs reacting to the pandemic? Right. So uh, as a former CISO, I now lead a team of former CISOs and practitioners. And what we do essentially is we bring that CISO perspective uh, both internally and externally to the company. So we help explain the point of view of the CISO as we're working on product, as we're working on customer success and that sort of thing. And uh, externally, sometimes we um, are privileged to be able to say things that CISOs don't usually get to say aloud in public because their companies won't let them. So uh, we do a lot of that as well. And of course, we talk to a lot of CISOs. What we're seeing now is, uh, first of all, there were a lot of organizations for which this pandemic came as a surprise, obviously, and uh, they've had to adapt very rapidly in concert with the business to get the remote connectivity set up. In a lot of places, they did have uh, remote access, but they only had it for administrative users or uh, a few remote users, but now they've had to roll it out to everyone and they've had to make it scale. So that's the sort of thing that everybody had to scramble to react to. Great. And and maybe can you talk about some of those, the technical challenges or and, and how companies have been adapting to those? Well, a, a lot of them, um, you know, they did what they had to do. Uh, they uh, really have shown their mettle, I think, in uh, setting up things, even though they couldn't necessarily be physically present to do these things. And they've had to get a lot more creative. So, for example, with the addition of secure collaboration, with video conferencing that is just skyrocketing in terms of usage, uh, they had to make sure that everybody knew how to use this, everybody could get the bandwidth available uh, to make it work, especially in cases where everybody is sitting at home now in a last mile configuration where their neighbors are all streaming Netflix and, and other sorts of video, and they're trying to get the Wi-Fi and internet bandwidth that they need in order to carry out their business activities. So th they've had to be very creative about it and had to communicate a lot with the business. And what I found happily is that a lot of CISOs have told me that they never thought that they could convince their business management to accept the risk of doing all of this remote access. And yet suddenly, now that it is necessary, 
uh, they've gotten permission to do it. So in other words, they've been able to do things now that they couldn't before, and it's been very empowering for them. Absolutely. I, I think this crisis has really highlighted um, what business processes are absolutely critical. And I know when we were talking before, you highlighted some really interesting examples uh, of processes that organizations had never thought about doing remotely. I know, for example, like onboarding and supply chain issues was something we were talking about before. Um, I'm just wondering if you can kind of highlight some more unique uh, bespoke issues that organizations didn't maybe didn't plan for originally when they first made the jump to remote working. Well, as you mentioned, uh, onboarding is one of those things where we had assumptions that now don't hold. Uh, for example, you would assume that when someone was being onboarded, they would come to a company headquarters. They would it would be safe to go in the building. It would be safe to be around other people. They would have the picture taken and they would have you know, their laminated badge handed to them. They would have a laptop given to them. And now uh, with everyone having to work from home, the supply chain for laptops has broken down quite a bit. It's become very difficult to get remote access equipment like that. And you can't simply walk into a building anymore. So you can't physically sign things. Not everyone has a fax machine at home. And so those processes that used to depend on physical access don't work very well anymore. Uh, another example that we found with um, multi-factor authentication is that in cases where uh, people were using biometrics uh, like fingerprint scanners as authentication, in especially in the healthcare industry now where people were sharing uh, a fingerprint reader, it's no longer sanitary to do that. It's no longer safe to touch something that everybody else is touching and you have to take off your gloves to do it and so on. Uh, so some of these organizations have had to rethink what factors work best for them for multi-factor authentication and say, you know, if you are still going to use a fingerprint reader, you better have one all to yourself and not share it. So let's use the one on your phone or let's use something else that you can use with your gloves still on. Uh, and of course, face ID is more difficult now when, when everybody's wearing a mask. So uh, there's been a lot of scrambling in particular areas to deal with these uh, assumptions that are now broken. Yeah, that's great. I think the, the fingerprint example is especially interesting one because there's just so many uh, nuances of not just working from home, but working from home in a pandemic that just no one ever accounted for. And even the most well-prepared company is still probably been caught out in, in numerous ways. Right. And another example is uh, that we had before the pandemic even was that uh, a customer came to me and said, how would you do multi-factor authentication in a sterile operating theater? And I thought, well, that's very interesting because you can't sterilize a phone, really. You can't sterilize a hard token. They don't you know, survive that. Um, you, you can't use something that is uh, like a retinal scan because the surgeon is wearing safety goggles and can't take them off. All sorts of things you can't do. And the more I thought about it, the more I figured that, first of all, if you are um, having to log into a system in a sterile operating theater, 
chances are because it is sterile, you have physical safeguards on access to that room. So it may be that you possibly don't need a second factor of authentication as long as you're mitigating the access to that login. Maybe you're using a special login just for that theater. Uh, so not only saying maybe we need to uh, you know, shift the factors that we're using or shift the mitigations that we're using, but we need to rethink the risk scenario from the bottom up and say, do we really need it in this case? Yes or no. So questioning fundamental assumptions, even beyond the technology, uh, is something that we're having to do now. Yeah, I think that highlights the need for CISOs to be not just very risk savvy, but also very business savvy and understand how their business works and how how it needs to operate in a secure way. Like just doing a blanket MFA in one way across the whole business doesn't necessarily work. You need to really understand what works where and when. It's very right. unique to each individual's uh, circumstance. Um, and you know, moving on from MFA, this like the pandemic has really highlighted the value, I think, of zero trust, whether that's single sign-on, multi-factor authentication, the need to access systems, very often very sensitive systems, and from anywhere at any time off any device. And I know you've got a, a lot of thoughts on zero trust. So I'm just wondering, you know, can you go into maybe uh which how zero trust has helped organizations and maybe have you seen a lot of organizations take it a jump, at least on the first step of zero trust during the pandemic? First of all, uh, I know that there are a lot of people who don't like the term zero trust. And, and I absolutely understand that because it, it's not the sort of thing you want to bring to your management and say, right, we're not going to trust anybody because you have to trust your business users in order to grant them access. Um, there's another term for it that uh, Chase Cunningham at Forrester came up with, which is uh, edge and entity security, which I actually like a lot better than zero trust. But anyway, um, zero trust doesn't necessarily mean zero trust. It can be um, a more collaborative model for working with your users. And by this, I mean, obviously, Right now, where we've had supply chain problems and everyone has to work from home, CISOs have had to say, right, either take your desktop from your office and take it home with you, or just use whatever you have at home and we'll deal with it. And that's really kind of the core of what Zero Trust is about, is that you should not have to care where a user is, what they're using, which network they're on, or where the application is. They should be getting the same security checks regardless. They should be getting a consistent experience and not being trusted just because they're in a building. So anytime you're thinking about whether you should trust something based on location, you should rethink that. And obviously this new, uh, new normal, as you described it, is, is making us think that way. So this is uh, what people are doing whether they realize it or not. There are organizations that have said, we, we're thinking about doing zero trust, but it seemed pretty intimidating. It seemed like a huge digital transformation. We hadn't gotten around to it. But honestly, if you are now allowing your users remote access and you're checking them thoroughly with multi-factor authentication, you're checking the health of their device, 
and you're saying you have to comply with certain security requirements in order to access our resources and we don't really care where you are, then guess what? Surprise, you're actually doing zero trust. So the question remains now that you're doing it and you, you realize that you are, where do you go from here? That's, that's a really good point. Zero trust isn't a single technology. It's, it's, it's not even a single idea. It's a group of ideas in, in a larger concept. And I think, yeah, like, as you said, a lot of organizations probably have already started it without realizing. And I think maybe CISOs need to understand and help their business understand it's a very incremental process to adopt zero trust. And, you know, at a time like this, kind of doing it bit by bit where it makes sense and probably in a very risk motivated approach can be very helpful right now. It, it is. And uh, to be honest, a lot of the principles that, we encourage people to follow with zero trust have been around with insecurity for decades. Um, the principles of least privilege don't give anybody access that they don't absolutely need. Segmenting, don't let one thing talk to another if it doesn't need to. Uh, being consistent with your checks, um, checking the security state of what's being used early and often, not just scanning it once once a month, you know, and wondering whether it's been patched, but checking it with every authentication. These are, are things that we have talked about for a long time that weren't necessarily easy to do years ago, but now that we have better technology to be able to, to do these things, it, it just makes sense to take these on. And so these principles can be adopted in a lot of different ways at a lot of different layers as the organization gets to them. So it, it doesn't really matter where you start with zero trust, as long as you start thinking in that way, as long as you're designing what you're putting in with that principle, that we're going to be consistent about it. Mm -hmm. And I know when we were speaking before, I said, would it be a good cost saver at a time when uh, many budgets might be under a little bit of constraint due to you know, pandemic-related uh, financial challenges, but you you see it much more as a business enabler than a cost saver, right? Yes, I, I really do. And, you know, when I've led sessions uh, talking with CISOs about zero trust and what they think it brings to them, most of the, the advantages that I hear about are um, easier organization and management, uh, more consistency, uh, better user experience for the user, and better risk management but hardly any of them really mention cost savings. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure that because these principles uh, are, are kind of um, you know, value neutral, uh, I'm not sure that you know, buying a particular kit or consolidating what you have is necessarily going to lower costs in that manner. But I can certainly imagine that um, enabling the business to do what they do faster and making it easier to manage what you have, letting users manage their own devices according to your specifications instead of you having to do it uh, could eventually uh, result in some cost savings. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've spoken to some CISOs who said their business now is a lot more open to hiring much further afield because they've proven to themselves they don't need to only hire people who can reach their building. You know, it's suddenly opened up a whole new talent pool 
Um, and, you know, and that that's a very hard me- value to measure, but there's definitely value in something like that. Oh, very much so, especially if you think about cost of living adjustments to salary, if they can hire further afield uh, people who are not living in very expensive capitals of the world, uh, then they certainly will be able to save some money there. Mm. And, you know, on the backside of that, you know, Zero Trust is often about technology, but every technology has an effect on the, the users. And, you know, I just wonder if you can go into kind of the the cultural change that not only zero trust, but I guess from uh, the, the pandemic has had on on users. You know how CISOs managed that cultural change. The there's a lot, you know with remote working, there's a lot more onus on the user, the employee, to act securely. There's a lot less um, monitoring. There's a lot less. The environment's different. You know, there's it's a different mentality. And you know, how have you found CISOs dealing with that change amongst their user base? A lot of it has to do with the change in control, because uh, you assume or you believe that you have a lot of control over users when they're physically in the office building and you can walk over and see what they're doing. Uh, That's not necessarily the case, but people tend to believe that. And so when everyone's at home and you don't know for sure where they are and you can't see them, First of all, you have to communicate a lot more. You have to reach out to them and say, here's what we can help you with. Here's what we expect. Uh, And then you have to take the the rest on faith. And I know that a lot of organizations are discovering that people working at home aren't necessarily uh, being lazy. They're not slacking off. In fact, some of them are more productive uh, than they were in the office And uh, so, you know, some of it is letting go of the control that they thought they had, not just over the technology, but over people and their behaviors and being able to say, you know, we trust you. So this is, again, where, you know, we're going to throw out that term zero trust and say, we just need to come out with better metrics, better proof points of how we can trust the people and the technology when we can't actually see them or control them. Yeah, it's a really good point. And, you know, I've a lot of CISOs I've I've heard from or spoken to, there's a lot more, you know, if they have daily stand-ups, the CISO might have a couple of minutes just to say, there's the threats we're seeing today, or just a little reminder being like, don't forget to do to do your patching updates, don't forget to sign in properly, don't forget to sign out properly. Little things like that. You know, I think it this crisis has made the CISO a lot more visible to a lot of the, the wider employee base within their companies, I think, than just IT and security. Uh, I think so. And again, you know, the CISO standing there as a business enabler uh, when she's part of the standup and is saying, uh, look, you can do what you want with your device on your own time. But when you want to log into company resources, you're going to have to be up to date on your software and you need to figure out how and when to do that. But you're not getting in until you're up to date. Um, Again, that's, you know, pulling back the policies to the edge of what the organization still controls without trying to reach out to the user and say, right, we want to control your personal phone. We want to wipe the data on it. Users are pushing back on that. And, you know, they're saying, right, you know, my personal life and what I do on my personal phone are my business. 
and we need to have a, a more definitive line there. Sure, I'll do what you need and what you require for business, but the rest of it, you need to you know, keep your hands off of my things. So uh, there's kind of a push and pull in that culture there uh, where the CISO does need to be more collaborative, less control-oriented and more service-oriented. And to say, how can I help you complete your mission rather than saying, right, this is how you have to do everything. Mm, that's a really nice point. And um, I think it ties in nicely, you know, as we we enter this kind of return to work phase, you know, whether that's step by step or, you know, a few people at a time in, in a distance, you know, different organizations are doing it very differently. But what kind of risks does that return to work bring from a cybersecurity stand, standpoint? And also, you know, does zero trust and some of the things you've been speaking about kind of remove a lot of that risk because it's or it's handled it's already handled at a remotely device level so the return to the corporate uh firewall is is kind of less important yeah it really depends uh again on how well you're doing uh, adopting the zero trust model because again the the idea is that it should be irrelevant where the user is and what device they're using and where they are and if you're used to having an infrastructure where you trust the user more when they're in the building and you're not making them authenticate as often and you're just saying, right, if they're coming from this IP address, they must be in the building and therefore we trust them, uh, then you probably have some rethinking to do when those uh, employees finally come back into the office. The other thing is that, you know, this situation will probably be going in waves and people may be coming in and going out again, it will be very dynamic. It won't be, uh, okay, everything's over, we're going to go back to normal. So there will be a lot of negotiation, a lot of dynamic um, issues in the environment as we go along. And again, zero trust, if you're doing it right, it should be a consistent experience for the users and the same type of risk management no matter where they are. So it shouldn't matter. But my concern is that a lot of organizations, especially smaller ones, who didn't have a lot of budget to deal with this in the first place, have sort of thrown in something insecure and thought, well, this is only for a couple of months. Uh, we'll just do this for now, and then everything will go back to normal. So if they did that, they could be at much greater risk because they didn't build uh, with the future in mind. Uh, they just did a very convenient thing that might not be secure. And we know that attackers are searching for these additional points into the network, into the resources. So what I would encourage those organizations to do, and you know who you are, um, that now assume that this is going to be going on for a very long time, if not forever. And it's time to think about how you can build this more securely and more permanently uh, for the future. No, I think that's a really nice point. You know, I've heard from vendors that there, there was a lot of panic buying and then there was kind of a consolidation phase. And I don't know if you agree, but I think now is the time to really look at what you put in and decide whether or not is that permanent. And if it's not permanent, how, how would I make something similar for, like that like that solution but built with security in mind i think now's the time to really rip out the temporary fixes you don't you didn't like the look of and put something proper in yes yes absolutely we we definitely agree on that 
Great. And finally, although it's, it's uh, you know, there's never a positive to a pandemic, what do you think are some of the lasting changes on the CISO side? You know, have they, I've heard some say their voice is louder within the board now because they previously had just, they previously had zero trust technologies in place. They they fought for the budget last year or the year before, and now it's really justified. Some of them have proven their worth by reacting quickly to the changes demanded from the business. Do you think do you think there's a lot of um, you know personal benefit for the CISO as a visibility as a role in terms of leadership, and you know maybe their their views are now have a bit more weight and gravitas than maybe they did this time last year. Well, certainly those who have stepped forward and helped the business through this crisis and have made it their priority to get the business what they needed in as secure a fashion as possible um, are are definitely showing up as more influential. And um, uh, to be honest, when I was a CISO, I used to hire former system administrators so that they understood all the systems and when there was an operational issue or a crisis we could step in and help right alongside everybody else instead of stepping back and saying right you know we're just going to care about the security aspects and we're going to tell you what you can and can't do you know that that's not helpful uh, in, in a, a business emergency so in as much as CISOs are stepping forward and again taking more of a service-oriented approach to security and saying how can we help you uh, even if it's strictly speaking not our remit we're going to help right alongside you Uh, this is a great opportunity for them to extend their influence within the organization and really be accepted in turn Absolutely. Uh, and I think as well, it's probably helped a lot of CSOs understand what their business really is. You know, before it's easy to read on paper what your company does, but as, as soon as you've got 100 employees telling you this is a critical process and your business stops working without it, it really brings into focus what's important. Yes, exactly. Great. Well, that's all we have time for today. Wendy, thank you very much for joining us. And thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in on this CSO and Cisco podcast. For more information around today's topics, you can head to csoonline.com or cisco.co.uk slash secwork. That's S-E-C-W-O-R-K. For CSO, I'm Dan Swinho. Thank you and goodbye.